0: Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey.
1: And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave?
0: Doing pretty good, Joe. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty good. We've got some follow-up from the last week's episode. Really? So you had asked about how to get audio set up on the Vive headphones and your TV or whatever speaker output in your living room, and Uh Nick one of our listeners and friends on Twitter sent over a link to something called voice meter and it's a voice meter with two E's. Um, and it's basically just a piece of software that can route the audio inputs from multiple things into one big blob of audio and then route it out into some other blobs of outputs. And then, uh, I'm explaining it badly, but it was so easy to figure out. It took less than three minutes Saturday morning of just installing it. and Like, oh, okay, here and here, test it. Yeah, it works.
0: So you might huh. want to check that out. Was that a pay package? or?
1: I haven't paid for anything yet. I'm not sure if it's a trial or not. I just kind of quick, quickly tested it, and then uh, I did another test to make sure it actually did positional audio, and it does. So the headphone still keeps any positional audio if the app has that built in. And then the TV will just be speakers, obviously. It'd be interesting to see how your surround sound system reacts to it.
0: Yeah. Where
1: is... I'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's worth checking out.
0: It is distributed as donationware. Means you can adjust the license price as you want according to your means or usage. Nice. We recommend to install Voice Meter first to test it. Uh, I'm sorry, install Voice Meter to test it first, and make a donation if you find it useful. What a lovely model.
1: Nice. They also have a a pro version of it, like Voice Meter Banana, with a similar model.
0: I'm I'm sorry, Voice Meter Banana. Yep. Banana. Hey, look, banana, <laughs> banana. <laughs> we're,
1: we're running out of business names, Dave. People are doing the best they can.
0: At least they spelled banana correctly and not with like four or five A's.
1: You know, I thought earlier this week if I ever, if I ever get smart enough to make my own programming language, I'm gonna make a programming language called Latin, but it's gonna be L A T N. Just one of those snarky startup names. Mm
0: -hmm. Apparently the thing that's become uh, popular in Japan is um, instead of trying to put a URL on like an advertisement or something like that, they'll do two weird words and just say, do a Google search for this. Hmm. So you hop online and run a search for like banana aardvark and (laughs) theirs will be the top result. (laughs) Because it's easier than trying to get people to remember weird spellings for domain names and things like that,
1: yeah, I don't know that seems that seems really easy to kind of google bomb somebody else's
0: brand potentially, but hopefully you'd still be the top result. I don't know, it yeah. just seemed funny,
1: so the other piece of follow-up I had was regarding remoting into the windows p c from my office. I mean, I've got – the quality of my problems in life is pretty high. <laughs> like, I, I have some, some pretty nice things to complain about in my life these, compared to – These
0: aren't first-world problems. These are like 0.25 world problems. Yeah.
1: So, you know, I'm separated – I've got these two computers separated by a wall and about three feet of distance. But, yeah, you know, it's just it's just too inconvenient to run a wire – through the wall or something like that. So I tested out uh TeamViewer last week and that was okay, but it was a little expensive when I actually looked at their pricing. It was like 40 bucks a month. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. So I ended up just going ahead and, and downloading the uh upgrading Windows to Windows 10 Pro, mm-hmm. which just seemed like a good idea anyway, and installed the Mac remote Windows remote desktop application and got that set up and I used to use that a lot at a previous job probably did 10 hours a week in it and it's always been relatively stable it's I would say it's even gotten better I'm using it on the LAN with the local IP of the Windows machine so it's really snappy there is some visual artifacts here and there but it's not really enough to make me care um but the thing that blew me away like I was Sometimes I use this app and sometimes I use the same remote desktop protocol with another third party app to get some extra features. The, the reason I'm probably not gonna do that this time is because I'm not sure when they added this, but it's really sweet. There's a setting in the Mac app that I can turn on multiple displays in that app. And then when I connect a new session, it will use both of my displays at my desk as displays at the, at, the, at their standard resolution for the Windows machine in separate workspaces on the Mac. So I basically have, I, I use the multiple space thing, uh, multiple desktop feature on Mac, and now I just have two more, one on each screen, for the Windows 10 UI. And at their native resolution, so I've got a 4K monitor here, and the whatever weird resolution the laptop is set to, Windows handles all of the, it's either Windows with the remote desktop software that handles setting all that up. And it just it works really well. All of a sudden, I've got dual screen Windows. And it's almost like I'm running three displays at that point. Because if I go out in the living room and turn the TV on, what's, what I'm working on here isn't necessarily going to be showing up there unless I drag it on there. So it's like I'm basically emulating two other displays across the software.
0: So virtual multi-display support. Yeah. That's kind of neat.
1: It's very cool. I was not expecting that, and I was kind of impressed.
0: What did it end up setting you back to upgrade Windows?
1: Uh, 100 bucks. So, yeah, just a regular upgrade fee. I guess I could have shopped around for some kind of Amazon key or something like that, but I wanted my instant gratification.
0: Sure. Very cool.
1: So, yeah, that was my follow-up what are you uh, what are you working on
0: um i've been working on the last chapter of the v r tutorial from the ray wenderlich book so this is chapter eleven in that book i believe let me double check that what what chapter VR tutorial? Oh,
1: i'm sorry what v r tutorial
0: i'm sorry not not v r the uh f p s first person shooter okay old school v r <laughs> um and uh, this is the section on throwing AI AI? UI. <laughs> I'm having a problem today. Um, throwing UI onto the screen. So displaying the number of rounds you have left for the particular current gun and things of that nature. Um, neat stuff. Relatively straightforward. I like the fact that it's one of the first environments that I've ever worked in where I honestly don't have to care about weird display port re-angling stuff. Mm-hmm. Like every time previously I tried to do anything in 3D, trying to get something to stick to the screen was just obnoxious. Um,
1: yeah, I don't know. It seems like SpriteKit and u and Unreal Engine all have really similar tools for this type of stuff. It's all pretty easy to use.
0: Yeah. There's a, a weird tendency that I noticed in the uh, Ray Wenderlich book, particularly in this section, where they've given you the particular coordinates for where you're supposed to place an object, mm-hmm. and about 20% of those are wrong. Like, I'll place everything exactly where they say to place it, and then you look at the end result, and it's not what it's supposed to look like.
1: Yeah, I don't think I placed anything by exact coordinates. I just put things where I wanted it.
0: Gotcha. I was following the instructions in the tutorial. And, uh, you know, when, you've, when you're when you placing the spawn points on the map for the robots, mm-hmm. like two of the spawn points were right next to each other. Yeah. Like, th- almost overlapping.
1: Yeah, I think that's and just a difference in us than I... I never, whenever I see like put these here, here, and here, I just kind of look at the layout that they were going for and just approximate it. Like it's, it's, I'm not learning how to type numbers into the inspector. I know how to do that.
0: <laughs> well, if I've got to place eight things and I want them to be kind of spread out and doing whatever, I might as well use their numbers. They came up with numbers. So here's the fun part the tutorials will have bad positioning for some number of objects. And I was trying to figure out whether that's necessarily a bad thing. Like, technically, I suppose you could say, no, that's bad. But what happens is I look at it and I go, huh, that doesn't look right. So I'm immediately back into debugging mode. Like, what did I do in my process? Because I thought I had this all figured out. And then I have to go through and fix them. But I'm not really paying attention to the numbers at this point. I'm using the UI to move objects around on screen rather than just using the positioning stuff. Mm-hmm. So I get both sides, which is kind of cool. Maybe it's even intentional. I don't know. Um, normally I have a, a whole stack of comments about the particular section that I've gone through and weird things that I noticed. And I don't really have a lot of those for this because it was pretty straightforward. Um, most of my problems at this point are things with code completion in video visual studio for Mac Okay. Just weird little things that were happening. I filed another couple of bug reports. Um, their process for tackling bugs, is Microsoft now, is so much more pleasant than dealing with Apple's. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, like I, it's not just I a can... black box that <laughs> things disappeared into forever? No, no, no. I, I was getting status updates within days. Nice. Like, ooh, we checked this. Ooh, look, we reproduced this. This is cool. Okay, thanks. You know, blue, blue. Okay, it's done. Should be fixed in the next version kind of thing. I'm like, okay, this is pleasant. I like filing bugs in this environment. Let me file more bugs. Because I'm pretty sure they're going to get tackled.
1: You should, uh, a brief digression, you should retell your story about when you first started working in Visual Studio a couple years ago. <laughs> After years so, of working with Apple stuff. Oh.
0: Yeah, I've been working on Apple platforms for 20, 25 years as a developer, professional at one degree or another, going through whether it was Apple Script, FileMaker, whatever like that. And in all of that time, the only time anybody from Apple was ever really interested in talking to me was in order to reject my app when I tried to get into the App Store. <laughs> Ouch. Um, And, I I mean, it's just, it's your, the word you use with black box. It's very much, in a lot of ways, a black box. Unless you're going to go to heroic lengths, you're not really going to have a conversation with anybody from Apple. Now, I know some people's experiences are different. If you want to go to WWDC or something like that, you can sit down with somebody from Apple. Um, So this is... My experience with working with developer tools from large companies. Um, yeah, There was a bug that I filed against iOS 7 while it was in beta. And a month later, somebody is like, okay, we fixed it. Try it in the latest beta. And I try it in the latest beta, and it doesn't work. And so I refile the thing, adjust the thing, and about a month later, okay, it's fixed. No. No, it's not fixed. And then it was like marked as closed or whatever. And then they fixed it two OS versions later and then rebroke it again more recently. It was just just not a pleasant experience all over. Um, They've got a very rigid structure that they want your bug report in. Even if your bug report is of a variety that wouldn't fit within there. Like, here's how I reproduced it. Here's the result that I got. Here's... Uh, what I was anticipating to get. And it was all very, very structured. And that structure doesn't seem to get me anything. Um, so I, I had written this huge application in Swift. Uh, for desktop Mac OS. And decided that I was going to. Rewrite this thing in Visual Studio. In C Sharp. For. WPF, the Windows Presentation Foundation, something like that, Mm -hmm. was the older, like, Windows 95 style uh, interface engine. And so I download the free Visual Studio and I'm working away on it and, you know, making a little bit of progress about a month later and things are going. And then I get an email from a team lead at Microsoft working on the Visual Studio tools. And he's like, hey, if you get a chance, I'd love to have you fill out this this questionnaire over here. And I'm like, okay, great questionnaire. As I'm reading the email, it's like, and if you've got an opportunity, I'd really love to schedule a time that we can like sit down over a virtual conference and just kind of talk about your experiences working with this tools and these tools and how we can make this all better. And I'm floored. <laughs> yeah. And this wasn't just, You know, some line, I fill out the questionnaire, contact the guy back, and we schedule a time. We spent an hour, hour and a half just talking about what I was finding and what I was liking and where the weird spots were and the things that I didn't like very much in Visual Studio. And I immediately felt much better about the tools, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, There are still some horrible flaws in those tools. This didn't paper over anything, but... (laughs) Um, it made a lot of sense to me why a lot of developers are committed to the windows platform or, or the windows developer stack and what they meant when they came over to the iOS side and started complaining. Yeah. Um, Um,
1: yeah, that would be a pretty big shock to come the other way from Yeah, we we care about developers and we answer their questions and help them as opposed to here's
0: the APIs. We'll see you next year. Yeah. On the flip side, even though it's much smaller, I've generally found the Apple developer community to be more friendly. Probably in response to Apple being a black box.
1: I um, wonder I wonder if that's if that's also because of, the, of like most of the windows developers i know which isn't very many they work on enterprise software that they can't really talk about and i wonder if that's there's just so many of those massive scale projects with you know thousands or tens of thousands of employees using some really secret thing i wonder if that's just kind of where a lot of that talent is going which is why you just kind of hear less where as opposed to the Apple and iOS side, it's almost entirely consumer stuff. There's some pro stuff, but most people that I know of are making consumer apps of some kind.
0: It's possible. Um, I liked that argument when we had previously talked about my difficulty finding a Windows developer subcontractor and having a lot of difficulty finding somebody who could functioning kind of a mentorship role paid mentorship role Mm -hmm. um and that really made a lot of sense there but i'm not sure that i buy that one for the the value in the community it's like the the value in the community is in a large case a lot of people asking questions and a lot of people providing answers to those questions and most of those answers are three lines of code like it's not a it's not a small thing, but um, the Windows developer documentation, I think, is generally better. There's a lot more examples, and the examples are thicker. There's more content there. An Apple example has a tendency to be, here's a line of code that uses that function. Mm-hmm. Thanks? Yeah. Not not really the detail I was looking <laughs> for here, but okay. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. In a lot of ways, I still prefer the Apple developer tools. Uh, But the Windows ones have been, I think, generally more stable for me.
1: Yeah, I have much less experience in both of them. But after working in Visual Studio for the last couple of months, the only praise that I really have is I don't ever feel like I'm working in Visual Studio. I'm just working in a text file with code with some good code completion. Whereas when I was working in Xcode, I am obviously working in Xcode (laughs) with their way of doing things. Like I, it just felt like a, a constant fight against the software. And there were things I liked about it, but there, there's a lot that I don't.
0: You get a lot, they're a lot closer together when you're using visual studio for windows for making desktop applications. Yeah, I can see that. Um, they're they're a lot more similar, but uh yeah, I don't know maybe if if there's interest, we can talk about that further at some other point the uh the oddities to visual Studio and where I think Apple's beating them in certain areas and other areas where Microsoft is winning mm. um so, yeah, so I'm working on this game, um, this tutorial. Um, I did find a fun bug. There's, um, uh, and it, I don't yet know if it's something that's going to be fixed later in the code, but I've noticed that when the, if I'm firing, say, the assault rifle, and it's firing full auto, just hold down the button and it keeps firing. When it runs out of ammo, it starts dry firing. And that's okay. The sound shifts, but I noticed today that it continues doing damage to opponents. Nice. Um, right before the show, I took a look in the code, and there's this very nice conditional that goes <clears throat> which sound to play, but then all of the ray casting to find out whether the bullet hit is outside that conditional, and happens either way. <laughs> nice. So <clears throat> I'm, I've got a little pin stuck in that one, and I'll finish out this chapter to see if they resolve it. If they don't, I'll Send them a little note going, let's take a look at this for the tutorial. Yeah. I've also got my player is right now not exceptionally gravity influenced. (laughs) Kind of floaty. Well, they're just, sometimes if I'll run face first into a robot, I will end up getting kind of popped up into the air. And then I'm just flying. Like just, I can run around the map and still shoot at stuff but I'm in the air now which means I can't pick up any pickups from the ground or anything like that I need something that's going to pull me down and I'm not sure which of 300 different ways to stick somebody to the ground is the right one for this context
1: hmm there was a in one of the AI examples I was working on this week I had built just a couple of test scenes with some spheres and, and blocks to be different agents and do different things. And at one point I had two of them doing different actions. Like you do the wonder routine, you do the seek routine or do the pursue routine or you do the avoid routine. And at one point I had the the wonder was just a sphere floating around and the cube was doing the pursue routine and it went after the sphere. And I had I had turned off gravity on the sphere without realizing it. So when it got closer, when the cube got closer to the sphere, the sphere just, not of its own volition, but just as a result of the influence of the other one, just sort of floating up in the air. And they just kind of danced <laughs> with each other like it was some kind of remote, like romantic music video with no gravity. I'm like uh, That's not what I was going for, but okay.
0: <laughs> and now you got to find out if you can turn that into a game.
1: <laughs> just need some cheesy music for it.
0: My my favorite bug that I wrote this week was um, I was writing a bunch of code controlling like levels and, and clearing a level and it starting a new level and spawning new robots. And then I messed up something where basically once a second, it started spawning more robots and not a small number of them. <laughs> and so everything looked okay for a little while. And then... Three, four seconds later, I'm like, there are a lot of robots on screen. And ten seconds after that, it's wall-to-wall robots. Like, it's a robot rave. (laughs) And they're all trying to fire rockets at me, and they're colliding with the other robots. And, oh, it was just messy. Hmm.
1: I did something like that in Unreal Engine in one of the tutorials. I forget what game it was, but I, I started spawning. It might have been like the tank game, where I started spawning... A bunch of projectiles but i had the wrong object and i was like spawning other tanks i was like shooting tanks
0: <laughs> yeah it was, it it's, was pretty ugly it's, you're not using the raindrop particles you were using <laughs> tanks it's just tanks falling out of the sky why not i love it yeah so that covers all the stuff i had related to the tutorials and the learning i've been doing what are you working on joe
1: obviously uh, still just working on my project my uh, daydream project and this week has been pretty productive um i've just kind of i kind of fell into a rhythm of working on ai and code stuff in the morning for five or six hours and then just kind of naturally shifting into Learning more about art and 3D modeling in the afternoon and evening. And uh, I think having those two different things to focus on is like, okay, my brain is exhausted and can't take any more of this. I'll go do this that uses a totally different part of my brain and I can still be useful. It was kind of a fun week that way. Um, So I've been spending a lot more time in Virto Studio, both the VR version and the Mac and Windows version, and the iOS version, and I think the desktop the desktop versions are okay, but they're not really what I'm there for. I'm really trying to get away from mouse and keyboard computing as much as possible. And the the VR version is probably the coolest, um, but there is some inefficiencies, like just moving around the menus could be streamlined. At one point I may do like a VR mock-up of my wish list for how the menus could be laid out and then send that to the developer. Like this doesn't work, but just some thoughts.
0: Um, that actually sounds really awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you should share that with everybody.
1: Okay. Yeah. I mean it would just be I would model it in Firno Studio and just make a 3D model of it and upload it somewhere. Um But uh, they have an iOS version and that is surprisingly fun and easy to do. Like just two hands, one hand pretty much only for selecting tools and changing tools and changing settings. And the other hand for actually doing the modeling and dragging and resizing things and adding polygons and extruding things. Like that was a really fast way to learn some basic concepts. which I just didn't, when I first saw that, I'm like, that can't be good. Like that's got to run horribly on an iPad, but it runs pretty good. I was surprised by that. Um, so it's taken me a while to get used to spending long periods of time in VR. Um, I I think I've like two, two and a half hours is probably the most I've been in there at once doing anything like the 3d modeling tools. But, uh, It's really nice to be able to just save that scene out to Google Drive and then go sit down with an iPad and keep working on the same thing.
0: Yeah, The consensus that I was hearing from people who have been doing heavy-duty 3D work on the new iPads is that the the 3D chips on those things are actually pretty powerful. Not necessarily VR-capable, but there wouldn't be... All that use for it, but just disgustingly mm-hmm. powerful for doing flat 3D stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple other apps that I looked at. Verto's is the only one that I've liked so far, as far as actually doing any modeling. Um, there's a couple other 3D modeling apps in VR that are on my wish list, and there's a couple other ones from the iOS store that are on my wish list, but none of them have both. I think Virto's is way ahead of everybody else by having something that you can use. On Mac and Windows and iOS. I'm not sure if they have an Android version. Um, I'd be surprised if they did, because there's not really a great selection of Android tablets right now. Um, but then having the Windows, they've got a Windows VR or the mixed reality version of the app. They've got a HoloLens version, which is probably the coolest if, you know, if HoloLens ever becomes a thing that's commercially viable, where they take that stack and Drill it down into a more consumer facing product. It would be really cool to you know, stand in my office or living room with the AR version of the headset and st- be working on models that way. Um, so, yeah, it was some pretty cool stuff. But I am the one thing I learned the most this week is I am really bad at this, which I knew, but <laughs> it's going to take me a really long time before I'm good enough at this to actually feel good about publishing any of this content in a in a game or a product. So what I have decided to do is keep working on it as kind of a side project and just kind of practice practice practice, keep making stuff, but I think for the game I'm working on now, I am going to use assets from the asset store or possibly even commission some stuff from an artist. I know a lot of developers get all fussy, like nobody should use stuff in the asset store. Everything's original, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, "Mm, I just, I kind of don't care for this project. (laughs) So if I have to be that guy, um, it's not like I'm buying a pre-made game and just reskinning it and selling it. I'm still making something unique with just with some low poly assets. So that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm just adding some new constraints to the project. Um, just to try to make it easier for me to finish this thing. So one of those constraints is using, is not making my own 3D models for it, using stuff in the asset store or commissioning some stuff from the artist, if that makes sense. Um, The other limitation is something that we talked about on Friday. Obviously, we didn't record it because it wasn't a podcast episode. It was just a phone call. But uh, Dave and I had a call Discussing, I was kind of torn between all the AI stuff that I've been learning um, and then how to best proceed with what I have learned and I'm still learning and which tools to kind of work for, work with going forward. So that the options were basically using Polarith, which was the AI steering package that I found a couple of weeks ago. Behavior designer, which has some movement and steering stuff built in, but is a larger product that is good for making behavior trees with a basically a drag and drop gui as opposed to writing code Although you can write code and extend you basically it's a it's a node-based graph full of tasks and you can write custom tasks to add to that um it's just a visual tool for laying out how those behaviors get called and then the other option was writing code myself um just based on the the books that I'm reading and the tutorials that I've done and I'm continuing to work on. And, you know, we, we talked about the pros and cons of each of those and pretty much decided that the, you know, the best thing for the project may be to use one of those tools, but the best thing for Joe to learn all this stuff is going to be write it myself. So that's what I'm trying to work on. So that's the other constraint that I applied is, you know, leave out these... Asset store packages like Polarith and behavior designer. Um, I may actually make an exception to that rule for something called sensor toolkit. I played with it a little bit over the weekend. I'm not sure if I'm going to use it or not or build my own sensors. Um, <clears throat> but basically at one point I'm going to need my AI agent to be able to see the surroundings and detect things visually. And there are there's plenty of ways to do that with raycasting and there's a quite a few examples in the books I'm working on but sensor toolkit has all of that pretty much just drag and drop like there's a some you make a game object attach some components to it set some parameters and then make that game object a child of the AI agent and pretty much keep moving so i may end up looking at that i want to understand how Sensing works before I use that type of technology. So I may use it or I may not. I'm not really sure yet. So yeah, AI stuff. My head has been swimming with it. <laughs> Learning steering and movement. And um, I, I, there's just so much. Uh, the I started with navigation mesh stuff in Unity like a month ago. And then I looked at... And you know, I ran into some stuff that I couldn't quite figure out how to do. So I looked at other stuff that could help me solve that problem, like Polaris, where I could actually do some pretty intelligent obstacle avoidance. And then I found some limitations with that, or I perceived some false limitations to that and looked at Behavior Designer, which is really cool, but has a huge learning curve and really kind of crap documentation. It's a really neat tool, but the documentation is little more than This is what this task does. There's no tutorial. There's no, (laughs) like, it's not great. Um, And then working on those three AI books that I mentioned, there's the Artificial Intelligence for Games, and then there's two of those packed publishing books for Unity. There's AI programming, Unity AI programming, and Unity programming, Unity Games AI programming, cookbook, something like that. They both have long wordy titles. And uh, the cookbook one has some really cool steering stuff, steering and movement in the first chapter where you create an agent class and a data class for uh, the steering data and then a base class for agent behaviors. And then you use that agent behavior class to build things like your seek and flee behaviors and pursue and evade and then um, at first working through the first six or so classes I'm like why is everything based around this hierarchy I don't really understand like all of this could be done independently but then we get to some chapters on actually blending behaviors together and that's where it becomes apparent that we're using this one steering data and this one steering method that it's true through all of these classes to actually be able to give each of these behaviors a weight and be able to do some weight-based blending um, or layer-based blending, or even combining those two together. So you can actually, you can do some really cool stuff with it, like agent, you're gonna pursue this type of game object. Anything that has this tag on it, you're gonna pursue these, and you're gonna avoid anything that has these three tags on it with these weights, and you can adjust those. So the, you know, the agent, may go way out of its way to avoid one of those types of objects, but may just kind of casually walk by another one. You can do some really neat stuff with it. Um, That being said, it was pretty complicated code, and it's not necessarily something I'm going to copy and paste into my project. It's something I'm referencing a lot to try and figure out, like, how do I solve these types of issues? Um, And there were some issues. This was written in, like, Unity... Three or five point three. Mm. So it's been a while. And uh there is some examples in the project that they sent over that just don't work anymore. Like even after the code conversion to modern versions, it just your examples don't work. So I'm definitely not using that code. Um but after banging my head on all the steering and movement stuff, then diving back into Unity's nav mesh stuff. And learning more about the navigation mesh agent realizing like this is built on top of that type of code so unity is abstracting away all of the seek and flee and pursue and evade behavior and giving me just one type of object to work with on top of that and obviously you can do obstacles and set objectives and stuff like that so unity is actually a lot farther their their native navigation stuff is a lot more handy than I thought it was going to be. So I've mm-hmm. kind of gone back to using that for the current working version of the app it is based around that. And then it doesn't do everything that I want it to do. So there'll be times where I can just kind of, ex- I don't know if I can extend that class, the navigation agent, navigation mess agent. I tried to subclass and make my own implementation, but they don't allow that. Oh. So that's not a thing I was hoping like, Oh, this will be easy. I'll just add a bunch of functions to it and then I'll be good. But I think what it'll be like is I'll be using the agent with the navigation mess agent attached, and then attaching a bunch of other components to supplement that behavior and kind of calling those as needed. So yeah, it's my head is swimming with this stuff. I'm explaining it badly. (laughs) And uh, like I said a couple weeks ago, like this is just absolutely fascinating stuff to think about. I could I could spend the next couple of years just learning this stuff and never ship anything, which is not the best idea. But uh, the, the other thing I've been working on today is finite state machines and trying to figure out how to actually structure my code. Do I want to do something based on how the cookbook did it? Do I want to just kind of plop everything into one area and I worked through a chapter of one of the books today that used the finite state machine that's actually built into unity kind of hiding under the disguise of the animator mm-hmm. um, so you create an animation controller and drag all the nodes around and do your state transitions and can attach behaviors to it that way and attaching behaviors to it is what actually makes this a viable option um, so you can they're not mono behavior scripts there's some other script I forget what they're called but uh essentially the way that I have it set up now I just have two states in the finite state machine there's like an idle state and an active state and to transition between them there is a a player controller that receives input from the Daydream controller and sends a signal to the AI controller that tells it to do some stuff and updates a boolean variable on the attached uh, finite state machine. That when that variable set, it gets set, it triggers one of two transitions between those two states, and then that one state, the uh, the active state has a script attached that calls back into the AI thing to do a certain action. So that was, it it sounds kludgy and I'm not sure if there's really that much benefit of actually using the visual tool as opposed to just writing it all in code. Like I worked through the example, I'm like, I I can see how this works and why this would be handy to visualize this, but I may just write this on a piece of paper and then write it in code because I'm not really sure I'm getting a big benefit from starting here creating this kind of almost black box black box object with some parameters i can't tightly control the same way that i can with regular properties so i'm not sure it's it's a weird one it's you know this is definitely using the animator for something besides what it's intended to be used for so obviously it's kind of weird um but i think i'm going to use some kind of variation of a finite state machine but i may just write it all in code the other option is maybe just kind of uh i guess call it screw it option <laughs> and just okay just plop everything into that ai class the agent class and then just have some conditional statements and some switching and maybe some enums and like okay We'll just we'll do everything right here and like different functions do different things. We need to enter a different state. Then we'll call a different function in the update function and the update uh, method. When a condition comes true, that's obviously the easiest way to go. Um, and I may just do that for now, just get things up and running and then kind of break that out into separate classes as I need. The cool thing about unity and their component system is it's pretty easy for me to write something write a big horrible blob of awfulness and then abstract that out later on into another class and just attach it as a component or attach it to another game object as a component and then re-reference it through that hierarchy so yeah AI stuff obviously I'm not going to be an AI teacher anytime soon
0: Well, not soon. I kind of want to see what happens to a Joe who spends three years learning AI.
1: (laughs) I mean, I'm not saying that this is an option, but it did cross my mind that I could just really throw myself into learning AI and build some machine learning stuff that would create the behavior for the game object for me. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's, that is technically an option. It's, it's not a good option, but, you know, that does exist. So with all that said, I'm still stuck on one of the main challenges that I have. And so far, the only thing that I've seen that can come close to solving it is using Polaris. So I think I need to really think about how I'm going to use the navigation mesh with some additional code to control navigation. But basically, I need a game AI agent that can be forced to avoid an object when it's doing pathfinding. So it needs to calculate a path around something, which is <clears throat> what the basis of most, path, most pathfinding is. Um, and the way you do that with navigation mesh is attach one of those nav mesh obstacle avoidance components to it and then you'll say oh okay i avoid these things and go around the problem is i need to also have that same object have its own navigation mesh on top of it and have something be something that the ai can climb on and the only option that i can think of is to do both is to literally do both i can have two objects occupying the same space and one of them can be a void and the other one can have the navigation mesh and then I can do the nav mesh linking like that. Um, It's kludgy but it's I think it's possible.
0: I really wish I was in a position to advise you. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Me too. (laughs) Yeah. I thought you were going to be spending most of the week on contract stuff. That is next week,
1: or this week. Oh. Yeah, starting the this week, I'll be spending a lot of time doing consulting work to the end of the month. So I'll have to kind of ramp down the amount of time I'm spending on Unity development. But I'll still be to, be doing enough to have something to talk about. But got to uh, pay the bills. So yeah, that's pretty much my update. There's a, There may be a bit of news coming this week that I'm excited about. I'm not sure if you are. But HTC is having an event in Beijing on Tuesday. And I saw a couple articles that were saying that they're expected to unveil their standalone VR headset that's powered by Google's WorldSense technology. So this is a headset concept that Google teased at Google I/O last May I think um it is one of the things that got me excited about working in Daydream entirely like I'm not really here for the 3 degree of freedom headset I'm here to use that as a learning tool to make stuff for this new inside out tracking headset um so be interested to see what it is, when it's actually coming. Is it just gonna be a, here it is, it has a name now, and we're taking this shadow off of the picture so you can see what it looks like. It'll be ready in two years. Like if if that's all it is, I'll be kind of sad. But if it's, you know, shipping next week or December fifteenth for the holidays or whatever, that would be really cool to actually see something like that hit for the holidays. From what yeah. I yeah <laughs> from what I can tell, it's it's a sixth degree of freedom. Headset, but not a controller. The controller is still looks like the Daydream controller, laser pointer y type thing, um, but you can have a lot better tracking with the headset. So it'd be interesting to see what kind of games and experiences we can make with that type of constraint. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's neat. Like, they, one of the demos they've got on Google's website is like a dodgeball game. I'm like, mm, yeah okay <laughs> it could be fine I guess
0: well if you're actually going to dodge a ball you've almost got to have six axis of some kind
1: yeah I just don't want to see the daydream store fill up with dodgeball clones
0: <laughs> <laughs> but dodgeball's great
1: yeah but we don't need 40 dodgeball apps so yeah the other thing that I I, uh, I played a new vibe game I don't even remember downloading this but I'm really glad that I did it is called uh, Chop and Drop VR and uh, essentially you are uh, maybe with the power company I guess and you've got one of those trucks with the little cherry picker things and you've got a chainsaw and you can move around and chop some wood off the trees and Make sure they're not interrupting with the power lines. And uh, it sounds ridiculous, and it absolutely is ridiculous. I think it might have been free. Um, but uh, it was actually a lot of fun. I was just flipping through my games with the headset on. I'm like, what did I say? I don't remember that. <laughs> it's been like 20 minutes, half an hour
0: or so, just chopping down trees. I'm checking, when did was the 8th, which is only six days ago. So the TP cast is now officially doing pre-orders in the U.S. Nice. Um, and I hopped on that list relatively quickly. I don't have a ship date yet. But it's on the way-ish, maybe, at some point. They're saying their original estimate was a little over a week from now mm-hmm. but we'll see what happens once they actually start shipping yeah um how much was one? it um it was 299 okay not the 250 that they'd been tossing around previously mm-hmm. um and the cost for shipping is horrifying really um yeah it really is um the like uh FedEx let me see if I can pull it up TPE cast. Um the like FedEx ground bottom of the line shipping method, twenty-four dollars. Hmm. That scaled up to next day for like a hundred and thirty. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, there's at least one battery pack in there. Like, it makes a certain amount of sense that it costs some money to ship the thing. But, man, they—that that is not a reasonable cost for shipping.
1: Are they shipping it straight from China? Like, I know it's a Chinese company.
0: I, I honestly don't know.
1: They may not have any distribution in the U.S., which would definitely drive the cost up.
0: I mean, one of the things that's delayed them is they've been setting up offices in the U.S. to actually have a U.S. corporate presence. Hmm. But I have no idea where the shipping is happening from.
1: Nice. Yeah, the only thing I know about it was uh, I watched a – I think it was a YouTube video or Periscope video that RevVR had done when he went somewhere to try it over the summer, met with the TP-Cast people and tried it for a while. Played a bunch of games and he was – Pretty skeptical about it. I think like everybody, like this this can't really work as well as advertised. And (laughs) he he was wrong. It worked really well. So yeah.
0: That seems to have been the general consensus. Everybody walks into it going, this can't there's no way.
1: I'm interested to know like what kind of business model a company like this has. Are they trying to sell this to Vive or Oculus or other HMD? Makers, because it this seems like it seems like a given that the next generation of headsets is going to have wireless built in, or the next one after that. Like it just doesn't seem like a great idea to to build a standalone company on a feature that's going to be absorbed
0: into kind of the base product. Yeah, well, it's going to depend upon whether the wireless gets there before machine-independent HMDs get good enough. Mm-hmm. Like, it may just be that wireless is the thing that people do when they're computerless as well. Yeah. At which point, even five later generations won't really have wireless because they won't need it. Or, you know, there's, there's too much weirdness going on um, to really know exactly where that's going to land, at least for me.
1: Yeah. Like the the mobile VR developers are approaching it from expanding from three degree of freedom headsets to standalone headsets with inside-out tracking. And the desktop manufacturers are adding wireless onto their current stack. So they're both kind of attacking the same problem from different directions with obviously very different experiences. Like the, the, the inside out tracking, I guess it's theoretically possible that it gets to the point where it's just as good as the, you know, the, the lighthouse technology, but that's a pretty high bar right now. <laughs> so yeah, I think we're a couple of years away from that. I would love to see it, but
0: I don't know. Well currently my Vive can track my hands even when I put them behind my back. So yeah, it's really good. Good luck world sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But simultaneously I'm not gonna say it's impossible. I don't know. I don't know what would be involved in making it happen. Um
1: Yeah, me neither. I'm a software guy. The yes. hardware the hardware shouldn't be easy. Just turn on the inside out tracking. Button and yeah. then give me the
0: device. The, the little checkbox.
1: Food comes from the store.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm vrhermit underscore Dave,
1: and I'm vrhermit underscore Joe. Thanks for listening.